Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Catherine Pena from Princeton University on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Um, you got your PhD from Columbia University in 2012. After that, you went on to do a postdoc at Iken School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. And since 2019, you are assistant professor at the Princeton Neuroscience Institute. A question I'd like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? How did I become interested in, in neuroscience? Or epigenetics. Or biology. <laughs> biology, okay. Um, I actually did not think that I was interested in, in science growing up. I thought that I was interested in history and, and government and policy. Uh, and it wasn't until I uh, was an undergrad and on a, a track to major in political science where I hated my first poli-sci class. And I happened to take another class at the same time about law, ethics, and neuroscience. And I thought that I was interested in taking that class for the law and ethics side of things. And it turned out that I was really interested in the neuroscience side of things. Uh, and that, that part was taught by Martha Farah at Penn, um, who I am still in, in occasional contact with. I like to remind her that she really got, got, my, got me started in neuroscience. Uh, so I was, I was sort of late to starting research compared to many peers in academia. I didn't start to do any lab work and research until my junior year of college. Um, but it's been continuous ever since then. I, I actually started looking, working in a cognitive neuroscience lab and then very quickly realized that I wanted to get into the nitty gritty and the molecular side of things. Um, and the first PI who let me, who took a chance on me and let me play with my first cohort of mice and, and test some of my own hypotheses out was, was Tracy Bale, who was then at Penn. And she has continued to be a fabulous mentor too. Oh, that's great. So you're kind of a late convert to, to science or at least to biology. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so coming to the science uh, that centers around the questions, how early life stress changes brain development. Um, and I want to start in the year 2000, 2013. And I think this was your PhD work. Uh, there you were looking at the effects of maternal care on epigenetic regulation um, of hormone receptor levels and on dopamine pathways. Uh, could you briefly explain what you did there and uh, what the results were. Yeah, so we were interested in how the experience of maternal care, and we were looking at natural variation in maternal, maternal care in rats, changed brain development in a way to actually um, influence maternal care of that next generation. So we can think of this as a, a transmission of maternal behavior across generations. Uh, and And a lot of maternal behavior is regulated in the neuroendocrine system and the hypothalamus, and then also in reward circuitry. So um, during my PhD, I looked in, in both the hypothalamic regions and in reward regions. And, and these are long-lasting effects. So the experience of care very early in life, and then the expression of, of behavior um, towards pups much later in life. So There's obviously a lot of evidence that epigenetic processes mediate these long-lasting changes in, in gene expression, um, which can then mediate 
differences in behavior. So we, we looked at those changes in gene expression uh, across time, across development. And that's really where I got into looking at, at time courses in general. And this is still something that I, I love to do and that we're doing in my lab now, looking across postnatal development. So um, what, what are you looking at when you say like time courses? Is it like hours, weeks or years? <laughs> what is the time course uh, you're looking yeah, at? Yeah, so in, in rodents, it's it's um, weeks. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we took tissue uh, at birth, at uh, after one week, after three weeks, and then in adulthood in, in these early studies in my PhD. And we're setting up similar time courses in my lab now. Uh, just to, to see, you know, it's funny, we know a lot about embryonic development, and we know a lot about what's happening in the adult brain, but the postnatal brain is still really a black box. Um, so I got really into understanding what's happening in that early postnatal period. When animals you know, most mammals really just need a lot of maternal care and maternal attention and the early environment makes a huge difference um, in, in brain development in general. So I wanted to know how those changes and those differences in environmental experience and in the level of care experienced change key genes that we, we knew to be involved in regulation of maternal behavior later. So these are um, estrogen receptors, alpha and beta, oxytocin receptor, um, in the hypothalamic regions, and then a host of genes known to be important for regulation and development of uh, dopamine neurons in, in the ventral tegmental area. Um, and we did see that maternal care, the level of maternal care, changed the level of DNA methylation at estrogen receptor alpha in these hypothalamic regions. Um, and this was this was present pretty early in the, in the postnatal brain and then lasted lasted into adulthood as well. Um, on the reward circuitry side of things, I didn't find, um, we, we didn't, this was, this was before I was doing genome-wide studies. So our candidate genes, we didn't find changes in, in DNA methylation, but we did see uh, changes in expression of another, a number of transcription factors, which obviously interact with the epigenome and are equally important for regulating transcription. So how did you put the stress on those pups? We are, or oh, many of, of, of us are doing like molecular studies, but when it comes to behavior, it's always um, hard to have like good control experiments or good controls when you are treating behavior. So how did you put the stress on the pups? Yeah, so this early work was looking at natural variation in maternal behavior. So we just did observations around the clock, really, on every cohort of animals and some um, some dams were very active in their interactions with their, with their litters, with their offspring, and some were much less active. And we were particularly interested in the tactile stimulation provided to the pups. So we would score behaviors like the amount of nursing, the amount of just general contact. Um, but it really seems like the amount of tactile stimulation in terms of licking and grooming is what makes a difference for these other aspects of brain development that we were looking at. Um, so those, those early studies were just natural variation, um, and, and we can relate high and low levels of tactile stimulation to different reproductive strategies and all kinds of fun things moving forward. Uh, but I did, as a postdoc in my lab now, switch to studying um, early life stress that, that we impose on the animals, and, and now we're using mice. And the stress that we use is a combination of maternal separation, so taking the pups away from the moms for a few hours a day. Um, you know, for anthropomorphizing, we can think about it as, as some aspect of neglect, perhaps. Um, 
And then we also take away some of their nesting resources. So a low resource environment in some ways as well. And other studies have shown that taking away nesting material can induce sort of just fractured and, and scattered uh, maternal behavior. So really stressing them in all the ways we, we can think to, to get a robust phenotype. And uh, yeah, the, the key thing you're looking at was DNA methylation at that point? My graduate work, we're mostly looking at DNA methylation. I uh, looked at some histone modifications, which again, we see you know, they're coordinated with, with DNA methylation and we see a coordinated response in the histone methylation or the, yeah, we're looking at uh, lysine 4 trimethylation and lysine 9 trimethylation for opposite modes of regulation. And we do in fact see that the level of maternal care induces opposite levels of K4 trimethylation and K9 trimethylation that we would expect. Um, then later on, you looked at how the effects of low maternal care in female offspring could be reverted. Um, so what did you do to revert the effects of low maternal care? Yeah, so we cross-fostered animals um, in one study. So we uh, switched animals that were born to a high stimulation mother uh, into the, the cages of, into the nests of a low, low licking grooming mother. So that's a, that are all like um, natural phenotypes, right? So They're all natural phenotypes, yeah. so exactly. So I cross-fostered at a couple different ages, um, either right at birth or after six days or after 10 days to see if there was sort of a sensitive period for the effects of maternal care. Um, and it seems like we could, we could switch the behavior and the gene expression profiles of the offspring to the greatest extent, either if we, if we cross-fostered at birth, which makes a lot of sense, or even somewhat more surprisingly after six days. Uh, and this was mostly surprising because the greatest amount of maternal care is really in the first um, week to 10 days. And after that, they sort of naturally start to wean their pups and they're less engaged with the pups as the pups eyes open and they become more independent. So it was somewhat surprising that we could still switch these phenotypes uh, after day six. Uh, but after day 10, we didn't see uh, any changes if we if we foster that late. But you saw also um, changes directly at birth. I mean, they never experienced any maternal care before that. Or is there some, some yes, level? Yes, exactly. Of yeah. So if we switch them right at birth, we could switch their behavioral phenotype and, and their gene expression profiles. Yeah. So that we expected that. Um, and this also this proves that it's a it's experience driven rather than something genetic or in, in utero as well. Yeah, that that's what what my thought was. Yeah, that it, it, they must have some experience. But if if there was some experience, like in utero, as you said, but uh, uh, apparently there is none. Uh, then in in a 2017 science publication, you identified a developmental transcription factor as a factor of lifelong stress susceptibility. In this paper, you also describe a two-hit model. Um, could you describe this model and how you were able to identify this transcription factor? Yeah, absolutely. So here, yeah, here we're no longer looking at natural variation in maternal care. Now we're imposing early life stress in, in these two different ways that I uh, mentioned, both restricted bedding, uh, nesting material, excuse me, and maternal separation. Um, and, and I came to this paradigm, we actually tested a ton of different ways of stressing out mice, none of which were, were particularly effective in my hands. Maybe they would change exploratory behavior a little bit, but uh, didn't actually shift their response to adult stress later in life. And I was, I was interested in um, how early life stress might shift 
experience of, of adult stress later in life, because there is robust evidence from the human clinical literature that uh, people who've experienced abuse or neglect or maltreatment or, or early life trauma seem to be more sensitive to stress throughout their life. And you can think of this as adaptive potentially, but it often leads to higher rates of depression and anxiety disorders um, in response to, to recent stress. So this has been robustly shown in the clinical literature. And we wanted to see if we could recapitulate that, model it in, in animals. Uh, so this, this combination of stress was really the only thing I found in my hands to be effective at actually shifting response to adult stress leader. Um, and even more interesting was that when we did this stress in the mice right after birth, they also didn't really seem to have um, any differences in, in their behavioral response to adult stress. But when I moved the period of time, when I was um, doing the maternal separations, then we finally saw that there's this increased sensitivity to adult stress um, on a number of different behavioral measures that we can, we can put the mice through. So that was really interesting. And there's evidence that there's a stress hypo-responsive period in, in animals where it behooves them to form an attachment to a caregiver, even if the caregiver is being sort of aggressive with them and there's something else um, you know, traumatic in that early environment. But we're all born so prematurely, we need caregivers no matter what. So animals do still form these attachments anyway. Um, and, and after about postnatal day 10, then they can mount their own stress response, their own um, court response hormonally, brain circuits more mature, all of that. So we think that we're tapping into that ability for the animals to actually have a, a greater hormonal stress response to the maternal separation experience after postnatal day 10, when we found our, our early life stress paradigm to be um, most effective, I guess is one way of saying it, but, but to induce the greatest uh, response to, to adult stress. And then we wanted to know how that stress was changing brain development. So we did RNA sequencing in a number of different brain regions, actually, in the adult brains. These are all very long-lasting transcriptional changes. Um, and in, in 2017, we focused on the ventral tegmental area, which is this reward dopamine-rich region of the brain that's known to be involved in, in motivated behaviors primarily, but is also very involved in um, stress response and implicated in, in depression-like behaviors like anhedonia and social withdrawal. Uh, so we started looking in the VTA and then expanded to also look in the nucleus accumbens and prefrontal cortex and see sort of at the, at the broad pattern level, similar patterns of, of transcriptional change and evidence that in fact stress changes transcriptional signatures in the brain and, and probably changes brain development itself in many ways. Um, and then within the VTA, we wanted to know what are the upstream drivers of these transcriptional signatures. So um, we used Ingenuity Pathway Analysis, which is Kaijin's um, software to, to predict these upstream drivers. And one of the top drivers was a transcription factor, orthodontical homeobox 2, which caught my attention because it's also involved in critical period plasticity in the visual system. And I thought, ooh, this is very cool. It's involved in critical period plasticity in this other brain region. Probably biology is not reinventing itself. And if we think we have a sensitive window for the experience of stress, maybe the same transcription factor is involved in 
um, in this particular sensitive period, but in a subcortical brain region. So we wanted to play with it. We wanted to manipulate it in both directions. We, we built some tools uh, to, to overexpress OTX2 and to knock it down. And most of the time, if you're doing a developmental study, you want to use um, a long-lasting virus to overexpress or knock down. So you want to use an AAV or a lentivirus or something like that. But because we were interested in, um, in sensitive windows, essentially, we wanted to use a very short-acting virus. So we use a herpes simplex virus, which expresses very quickly, but then turns off expression after about seven to 10 days. So it's a, a very limited. Which would uh, mimic the window, uh, the caregiving window. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I played with OTX2. We pushed it in both directions at different points in development, either in what we think is, is a sensitive window for experience of stress um, early in life or in adulthood. And One of the interesting things was that if we if we manipulate OTX2 in adulthood, so if we, if we knock it down, we do see a similar effect on um, susceptibility to these depression-like behaviors in mice if we test during the period of knockdown. But if we test after two months, so, so I'll, I should actually back up. If we knock down OTX2 in the VTA, during development, we can recapitulate or mimic the effect of early life stress. Even if that, that knockdown is just very transient and short, we can overexpress OTX2 in early life stress mice, even if it's just a very transient overexpression, overexpression and we can rescue the effect of early life stress. So it was very cool to see this effect early, but, but we wanted to know, is this a sensitive window or not? So if we test in adulthood, um, during the period where the virus is still on board, we can see a similar effect. But if we wait two months, similar to how we had to wait after expressing the virus in, in, the, in the pups, we no longer see an effect of the manipulation. So to me, this, this really said there's something about how OTX2 is acting in this developmental period when, it, when it's really structuring dopamine neurons and, and maturation of the brain that has a long-lasting effect. And we don't get that same long-lasting effect if we manipulate it in adulthood. So there is something special about development, which we're, which we're still trying to understand now in my lab. What is special about development um, that, that's able to have these long-lasting effects? So did you look at other factors that would work together with OTX2? We haven't done any manipulations of other factors that work together with OTX2, but, um, but we looked at gene expression of a, a number of genes that it, it regulates um, and, and can see also that even with these transient manipulations early in life, we, we see the predicted effect of, um, of the genes that it regulates lasting into adulthood. So one of the big head scratchers to me was that we, we thought, well, maybe it's having OTX2 is having um, this effect on its target genes. It's acting as a transcription factor, binding in these different places in the genome, changing expression of these target genes. Maybe there's this difference of, of binding early in life and, and we still see differences of binding in adulthood. And that's how we have these effects. And we did see binding differences early in life, but we actually didn't see any maintenance of these binding of OTX2 binding to target genes in adulthood. So 
to me, that says that it's it's setting up these changes early and then getting out of the way. <laughs> it's no longer it's no longer what's maintaining these transcription changes in adulthood. Um, so one question is, how is it setting up these long lasting changes? Is it recruiting other epigenetic factors to sort of take over and maintain those transcriptional changes? The other the other cool thing that my lab is, is trying to go after now is that we see these transcriptional changes after early life stress that OTX2 seems to be involved in, in setting up. But then in response to adult stress, there's a whole different set of transcriptional changes. Um, so, so there are acute but long-lasting changes in transcription, and then there's latent changes in transcription. And so one of the other things that we're trying to understand now is what's regulating these latent changes in transcription and and what are the epigenetic factors that might be maintaining these long-lasting changes that we can see, but then what are the other epigenetic factors that might be helping sort of set up this latent response to a second hit of stress? I'm excited about those in my lab right now. So we are recording this interview at the end of June 2021. Um, this is why I can say that your last paper was published just a month ago. <laughs> And there you looked at the role of H3K79 dimethylation and the effects on early life stress. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> so the question obviously is what is the role of histone PTMs in this process and uh, and which chromatin-modifying en enzymes and or readers of chromatin modifications might also be involved? Yeah, this is a really exciting question. Um, this is a, a project um, spearheaded by a fantastic MD-PhD student who I worked with when we were both in Eric Nessler's lab, um, Hope Cronman. And one of the first things she did while I was working on what's happening in the ventral tegmental area, she got excited about what's happening in the nucleus accumbens. Um, and, and one of the first things she did was... Um, uh, Look, take instead of looking at all these histone modifications one by one using Western blot, we collaborated with with Ben Garcia's lab and used mass spec to look at all of them all at once. So this was much more high throughput, very exciting, and she did it really well. She looked at males and females, and she looked across development. So here's my my love of time courses coming back, which uh, sounds like a lot of work, <laughs> <laughs> which is a lot of work, yes, um, and. And it's not straightforward, you know, so things change in unexpected ways. It's not just a, a steady change. Sometimes there are non-monotonic changes and, and I get excited about that too. So, but one of the things that that stood out um, were persistent changes in histone 3 lysine 79 methylation. Uh, so this could be monomethylated, dimethylated, trimethylated. Um, and it seemed like in, in both males and females, there was a, a decrease in K79 methylation sort of across the board when we look at all those system modifications together. Uh, what is the general role of H3 lysine 79 methylation? Is it transcriptional activation, uh, repression, or what is its function? It is generally associated with transcriptional activation, but it's not as straightforward as maybe uh, K4 trimethylation, which is sort of always associated with activation. This is somewhat more ambiguous and probably a lot to do with other transcription factors and other histone modifications. So I think the jury is a little bit confused on, on the histone code for, for K79. The other cool thing about it is it's not in the histone tails, um, it's in the core. Uh, so it's it's interacting with transcriptional machinery in a little bit of a different way. But being in the core still means exposed to the outside of the nucleosome, right? Because otherwise yes. it wouldn't have any effects. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I can still change the sterics of, of the DNA. Um, and so, so the enzyme, you asked about the, the enzymatic readers, writers and erasers, we're always interested in how these, these marks are established and, and taken off um, in red. So, so dot one L is one of the writers of K79 methylation, and it can write mono, di, and trimethylation. So we borrowed the transcriptional data sets that I'd already generated um, and, and thought about the, the gene expression changes that we had seen in, in those data sets, particularly of epigenetic writers and erasers. And one of the things that stood out was that not only do we see these changes in K79 methylation levels, we also saw a significant impact of early life stress on DOT1L. Uh, so, so this was enough of a starting point to say, okay, maybe this is important. Let's let's figure out what's going on here. Um, and one of the cool things about the nucleus accumbens is that there are these two main types of neurons that express either dopamine receptor type one or type two, um, and and they act in opposite ways um, in in many aspects. So, we wanted to know are these effects that we're seeing um, of dot one L in D1 type neurons or D2 type neurons um, and how, wh what's different in the, in the males and females. We actually also saw dot one all pushed in different directions in males and females in the transcriptional data set. And so, um, so Hope did uh, fluorescence activated nuclear sorting and sorted out the D1 from D2 type neurons and saw that um, dot one L was increased in expression after early life stress, particularly in the D2 type neurons. Um, and, and interestingly in the females, she saw the opposite effect in, in the D1 neurons. And this sort of might help explain the sex differences in transcription we had seen in the whole tissue levels. So it seems like this is a, a D2 specific effect where ELS is increasing Dot one L. Um, she also looked at the eraser, one of the erasers, which is uh, lysine demethylase 2B. Um, and, and one thing that confused us was that it was also increased <laughs> in the nucleus accumbens. So in, in this, um, in D2 neurons. So they're both up, both the writers and erasers are up. Uh, so, so one of the things she did to solve this particular conundrum is, is look at where uh, the changes in lysine 79 methylation are throughout the genome. So we can look at this whole tissue level or even a cell sorted level, but you know, maybe we'll get clues about what's happening if we look across the genome, you know, where we actually see these changes in uh, K79 methylation. Um, and she's focused on dimethylation here. And, and it seems like the, the compartments where it's distributed is, is different. So if we looked at, um, where methylation is up or down um, in the regions, it seems like it's mostly down across the genome, just the number of uh, different regions that had K79 dimethylation. But if, if she looked at the effect size, so the magnitude of change in these regions, there's actually a predominantly increased, uh, the effect size was bigger, sorry, I think I have this opposite. There are more regions, <laughs> this is where it gets confusing. There are more regions that showed an increase in K79 dimethylation, but the effect size was bigger for the, the decreases. So, so putting those together, we, we think that this is sort of, the early life stress is, is changing 
the distribution of K79 dimethylation. And that might be where we see both an increase of the eraser and, and the writer coming into play there. Yeah, really complicated. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you working on right now and what are your plans for, let's say, the next five years? Yeah, so I, um, I'm taking a step back from, from OTX2 specifically and we're, we're trying to understand some of these broader patterns that we had seen, like the pattern of, of transcriptional priming in response to a second hit of stress. So, so this to me was the most exciting. You know, how, how are we setting up one transcriptional um, effect that seems to be very long lasting and then simultaneously a completely different transcriptional effect? And it wasn't as though the effect of adult stress augmented the transcriptional changes that we'd already seen with early life stress. And it really was a different set of, of genes or being uh, modulated in response to adult stress. And another way to sort of think about that is the effect of adult stress was completely different depending on whether or not an animal had experienced early life stress. So, so that's the pattern that I got really excited about. We have this latent behavioral effect. We have these latent transcriptional changes. What's regulating that? Um, and we, and, and there's a lot of evidence. Um, so we, another way of thinking about latent effects is maybe the effect is primed and there is a whole, uh, niche field of, of epigenetics related to epigenetic priming. So we also see in the ventral tegmental area where, where I had started my research um, increases in histone 3 lysine 4 monomethylation, which is one of the markers of primed enhancers. So we think that perhaps early life stress is having whatever transcriptional effects it's having that can be long lasting into adulthood, but simultaneously it's, it's priming other enhancers to be hyper-responsive to future stress experience. Um, so we have, we're building evidence of, of this case now, and we're trying to manipulate the writers and erasers of, um, of histone 3 lysine 4 monomethylation in particular. So again, we can have monomethylation, dimethylation, trimethylation. Um, the MLL family of, of writers are involved in methylation uh, up through trimethylation, but there is an enzyme that everyone overlooks, <laughs> CET-D7, which is actually specifically involved in monomethylation of histone uh, 3-lysine-4. And it doesn't seem to go on to um, dimethylation or trimethylation. So that's the enzyme that we're trying to harness right now, seeing if we can specifically increase monomethylation levels and prime responsivity to future experiences, future stress in particular, both at the transcriptional level and at the behavioral level. Yeah, then we hope to read uh, something uh, of the story then in the near future, obviously. Hopefully, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we also did a bit of mass spec in the VTA where we where we see evidence of this increase in monomethylation, K4 monomethylation. Um, so hopefully that will be coming out at least on my archive sooner than later. And then a uh, fantastic postdoc in my lab, Julianne Rodier, uh, has been you know, leading an effort to, to manipulate K4 monomethylation. And, and we're, we're taking our time to do it right and to do it many ways, prove it to ourselves at different levels. So that will be probably a little bit later, but hopefully not, hopefully not uh, too far in the future, at least. So to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. Uh, the first one, did you at one point of a career of your career face the situation that you reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? 
Yes, absolutely. So especially with this OTX2 story, I was, I was very confused for a long time. Um, and I, I had all these hypotheses, maybe OTX2 is acting as a pioneer factor, and that's how we're getting these long-lasting changes. There is some evidence of that in, in embryonic development, although we're looking at later stages. And, and finally, I just looked at the data, and there was no evidence of, <laughs> of what I thought OTX2 might be doing at the chromatin level. Um, and I let it go, and, and we switched gears, and, and that's how we're sort of going after this K4 monomethylation story. They might be related in some way that I haven't figured out yet. They might not be, but to me, the most important thing was to finally sit back and and listen to the data. And we had mounting evidence in this other direction for these latent effects that OTX2 just does not seem to be involved in the latent effect. Um, so that that was a good a good general lesson, and I've had to embrace that in in my lab already, where something just doesn't work, and it's it's not worth being frustrated over, uh, yep. you know, we get, we get caught in the sunk cost fallacy very easily. And I've, I've been trying to embrace just listening to the data and walking away and, and, and figuring out what, are, what's really happening to the, to the extent that we can. Yep. So in the last 35 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview? Oh gosh. Uh, we've, we've covered, <laughs> I think everything that I've been excited about and, and, uh, yeah, the important findings, I think, um, I will say that I've, I've been extremely lucky to have already gotten to work with many fabulous people in, in my new lab, which is still feels like a baby lab, a toddler, toddler lab. And I, I have to give a shout out to actually an undergrad who is in my lab when I first opened it and she was a Spanish major here at Princeton, um, but is applying for med school and, and wanted to get me more wet lab experience. And she was thinking about the maternal separation stress that we were doing in our mice. This was 2019, uh, pre-pandemic. <laughs> and, and the news cycle at the time had a lot about maternal separation in the U.S. in particular, and how we were separating children from their parents at the border who were trying to emigrate from Central America and Mexico. And she actually got her own funding to interview families who were migrating to the United States, seeking asylum in many cases, and ask the parents about their children's early life stress experiences and potential experience of maternal separation during, during detention. Um, and and we're, we've tried to be extremely careful with how we're writing this up, but it's a powerful story and it really gives a lot of credence to the work that we're doing in animals, trying to solve what's happening in the brain, because these are real life issues. It's not just playing with animals and playing with epigenetics, but, but her work really grounds us in, in why we're trying to understand these particular effects in the brain. Um, and so Yeah, I just wanted to give a shout out to her and this important work, and hopefully we'll we'll see that coming out soon too. No epigenetics involved in that one. We actually were hoping to, to collect some um, salivary samples to do DNA methylation analysis with, but that got very complicated with this particularly vulnerable and politically unstable population, so that didn't work out. But um, but but we see obviously an effect of, of early life trauma in these children and. Um, and being separated from their parents 
in you know in the cases where that happened uh, was was detrimental to the children's stress response and mental health. So, um, so this yeah, is not, this is not published yet. It's not published yet, no. But it's a powerful reminder of of why we do this work and why we hope to understand more about what's happening in the brain and ultimately ameliorate those effects and, and help that population of children. I think that's a good point to end. Thank you, Catherine, for your time and for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.